Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Hello, everyone. Emily here. Welcome back to another episode of Built by Us. This episode will be a little different than our usual conversations. Recently, the Democracy Summer team got together to have what we call lunch with lawmakers. Our wonderful interns prepared questions that were asked to three different North Carolina representatives. With us, we had Representative Zach Hawkins, Representative Ricky Hurtado, and Representative Vernetta Alston. Without further ado, let's hear this wonderful dialogue. Um, my name is Lucas Sejo. I'm originally from New Bern, North Carolina, uh, but I'm currently in Raleigh, um, so I'm just outside of all of your districts. Um, and I am a I am a student at NC State University, double majoring in political science and agricultural science. Um, and my first question for each of you, you both just kind of touched on it, but I just wanted to delve a little deeper. Um, how will each of you prioritize countering legislation that is harmful to voters in North Carolina, such as Senate Bill 326, 724, and 725? Um, and for clarification, 326 would block mail-in ballots received after 5 p.m. on election day from being counted. 724 would provide funding to the state's voter ID law that's currently locked up in, uh, in, in the court case. Um, and seven through five would block county board of elections from receiving grant, grant funding from uh, nonprofit organizations. So seven seven twenty five. You know, we just saw the governor this morning, and um, the money they they act as if there's some liberal conspiracy to send money in to impact um, liberal districts and to turn out voters. The money, for the most part, is at the discretion of nonpartisan entities like our state board and you know local boards. I mean, so the money's not going to, to help just one sector. That for me is, uh, is just something that we sort of have to continue to sort of uh, speak truth to power about and let them know that by doing that, they, they're hurting democracy um, because you know we haven't funded our boards of elections in the ways that they should. So sometimes there's a need for an additional funding. That's just the, the model on that. The other one about um, blocking mail-in ballots, that's, that's just wrong and that's targeted. Um, so that's a high priority for me and one that we focus on because we we saw what the default was because of COVID and what that did for people's ability, Democrat or Republican, to make sure that their ballot was counted. And if in a democracy, if, if people can't trust that they're, when they mail in their ballot, when they go to the polls, that it's going to be counted and counted correctly, then that that strikes the foundation of, of who we are as a nation. Um, and so we, we put a hop emphasis on, on that particular one because um, uh, it's, it's targeted. And they, they know that if we're, we give people the ability um, to ensure that all votes are counted, I think the estimation is that 14,000, if some of the pieces that they put in place, 14,000 ballots would not have been counted. And we already know who that would impact, um, especially some of our statewide races. And so uh, it's very serious. I would say this is the most important thing that we need to be focused on is voting rights, because after that, it's gerrymandering. And then you already know the situation that we're in right now. So all of it really flows together. I really appreciate your answer, um, Representative Hawkins. Um, it was very thorough and I, it worked out well that you had just mentioned to us about how uh, important voting rights is to you. And I appreciate, um, I appreciate you, you taking that up as your main priority. Um, for Representative uh, Hurtado and uh, Alston, um, you both mentioned um, climate 
and, and environment and um, the budget respectively as your one of your main priorities right now. So I wanted to know, I wanted to modify this question a little bit and know, um, you know, following those, um, following those issues, where do you see voting rights in the current um, crisis we're having with Jim Crow 2.0 on your list of priorities of legislation that needs to be um, passed or blocked in the, in the General Assembly? I mean, I think it's a huge priority. I mean, I, I, I can't explain it any better than Representative Hawkins did, but obviously these are, these are bad bills and we'll, you know, fight them tooth and nail uh, to make sure that they don't pass. I mean, I think that's the, the long and the short of it. And I'll let Representative Furtado weigh in on that. Yeah, I mean, ditto to what both of my colleagues have already said, certainly one of the highest priorities. When you begin to look at issues like the environment, issues like what we should be prioritizing in our budget, uh, we recognize that there's a majority of people who support measures like funding for public education, like protecting our environment, a number of common sense policy issues that would help our communities move forward and really invest in our people. But when you think about something like voting rights, that really limits who has a say at the ballot box, right? Which then means that a minority of folks are ruling against the majority of public opinion when, when, you, when you're thinking in that regard. And so I do think that it's important to recognize that this is not by accident, right? This is by design when you think about uh, a national campaign to introduce anti-democratic sort of anti-voting rights legislation in state legislatures across the country to make sure that the few are making decisions for the many. Thank you for that, uh, both of you. Um, my next question is, as a North Carolinian who has family members um, that unfortunately strongly believe that the 2020 election was illegitimate, what role do you think state policymakers can play in dispelling the unrest and unease associated with this thought? Telling the truth. That's just it. Tell the truth. Because if, if the 2020 presidential is illegitimate, that means the statewide is illegitimate. That means congressional is illegitimate. That means this legislature and this majority is illegitimate. So they just need to tell the truth. So that's that's it and that's all. <laughs> yeah, I think the scary thing too though is, you know, the, the disinformation is not gonna stop, you know, whether regardless of the, whether it's the validity of the election or some other piece of um, disinformation. And I think the scary thing is it seems to me, you know, I think legislators have a huge role to play. Obviously, they are, they set the tone, they set the agenda, and they push the agenda. And what's what the scary part is, they, I think they feel that their playbook in 2020 worked, and that's why we're seeing this spate, you know, nationwide. Uh, to Ricky's point of, or Representative Tata's point of, these national efforts around these terrible voting rights bills, or you know, other social issues that are front and center to their agenda, um, and that disinformation helps them. Uh, and that they can win with this playbook of, of not telling the truth. Um, and so I think that's really terrifying. Um, and yeah, folks should step up and, and rediscover their moral compass and hopefully that'll happen at some point in the near future. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just chime in quickly here. He took the words out of my mouth. Uh, Representative Sock Hawkins, I was literally mouthing, just tell the truth, right? Um, I think it's incumbent on all of us, um, both citizens and elected officials alike, to be having these conversations as easy as hard they may be in our community. Uh, something we're doing um, in Alamance County is making sure we're trying to cut through the noise because we also recognize that we live in a hyper-polarized environment right now, right? And so when it comes to 
communicating via social media or even the paper, sometimes that those sort of messages get drowned out, right? Because of the speed of which we're getting information today. It looks a lot different when you're having these conversations in person. And so we're really trying to be in the community, knocking on doors, hosting town halls, really having conversations, uh, which require a little bit of more uplifting. But I think we're in a really dangerous point in our society where disinformation really is sort of fracturing the, the viability of a functioning democracy. And we have to do everything in our power to really reverse that trend right now. I wanted to ask all three of you, the drawing on your experience as community organizers and the work you've done previously in the past um, in community organizing, um, how do you think that we as community organizers can best strengthen the trust our communities have in our democratic processes, whether that's you know them believing that the election was illegitimate or whether they're them you know generally being scared um, about you know Senate bills that I mentioned previously. Representative Hurtado said it said it well that um, you know the the things that you can do about that is just getting out and talking to people. You'd be amazed how many voters have never had someone come to their door. Um, how many people have never had someone explain a bill because, hey, how many working folks nine to five and, you know, kids and a family don't have time to go to town halls. Um, and so we have to bring democracy uh, to them and we have to make sure that we establish what are trusted sources and be there in a non-judgmental way, in a nonpartisan way um, to sort of dispel things that, that are missed, that they're hearing and make sure that they understand the processes that we simply have laid out. Uh, the first is that, you know, one man, one vote, um, that, you know, people are fighting for your right to exercise your First Amendment rights from your ability to cast a vote um, and being clear and, again, nonpartisan, nonjudgmental uh, about what they know and what they don't know, right? So because sometimes people get defensive because they don't know how the details of policy work. And so us being able to draw that line for them in some interactions um, is really, really key to let them know this is how this policy impacts you. And this is how you being involved in that process in any way helps to move that kind of thing forward. Demystifying the process, make it simple. Um, because it's it, in many ways, it's not that hard. People make it hard. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, Renetta and Ricky can uh, attest to that. They make it hard, but making it simple to people and, and letting them know that you're genuine and you're coming because they're important, that sends a really, really strong message. How y'all doing? My name is Hassan Burr. I'm an organizer, I'm an artist, I'm happy to be here. My questions for y'all are, the first one is, have you been in contact with members of your community recently, constituents, coalition members, things like that? And what are some of the things you're trying to implement in their stead? I'm happy to jump in here. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks for being here, Hassan. And thanks for the good work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think constituent work for me is the most important work that we're elected to do here in the General Assembly beyond um, legislating, right? And even then, right, how are we bringing community voices to the table to make sure that they are represented in the process? Uh, it's it's challenging when you're in the minority, as, as some of us are right now. But at the same time, there's still a lot of conversations that can inform your approach, your strategy, and, and the desires of the community. I do it on a weekly basis, um, both by uh, touching base with groups back at home uh, to update them on policy, to help them understand what's happening in Raleigh, 
because things do move fast and, and, and you certainly want them to be informed and answer their questions. But like I've said, we, we um, have started doing less of the sort of just sticking to social media and the papers and actually going out to the community, right? Like folks are busy. They, you know, they have jobs. Uh, there's limited time to get their attention. So we're knocking on people's doors, right? We've, we've been doing that since early March. Um, and we've made um, a few thousand calls at this point, touching base with folks, asking them what they're, what they need uh, and their thoughts on what's happening in Raleigh, as well as informing them on the budget process here. And you'd be amazed to hear how many people say, wow, I, I, I always expect uh, a potential representative to be at my door, my phone before the election, but I never expect them after the election. And they will tell you what they need. They will tell you what's going on. Um, and they will have your back too, right? And I don't mean that in a partisan way. I just mean for folks that are genuinely interested in the democratic process and in telling you what their community needs, they'll let you know, right? If you form that relationship. So I think that's the most valuable thing we can be doing and if you're not doing that as a representative, I think you're doing it wrong. Thank you. I would just get Representative Furtado to talk about his vaccine outreach. That's some, that's pretty amazing constituent outreach that he told. Yeah, for sure. Um, that Thanks for prompting that, um, Representative Hawkins. I think that part of our philosophy as a, as a sort of a, a community leader and as an elected official and as a candidate, however, whatever hat you want to put on me is, is meeting voters, meeting your constituents where they are. Uh, and so during COVID, we weren't as much asking for people's votes as it was uh, asking them what they needed, right? We delivered groceries, we got PP in people's hands, uh, made sure they were connected to resources. And now post-election, we're calling folks and asking them if they have all the information they need to make sure they are getting the vaccines um, at the appropriate time. That was especially crucial whenever we were still in the beginning stages where we were having sort of groups go in, there was a lot of confusion in the community. Folks weren't sure where to go, how to get it, if it was safe, a lot of questions. And so we we're just checking in with folks and we were able to fill in some vaccine appointments on the spot over the phone and at the very least get everybody the information they need. And so people were incredibly grateful for that. And it was a conversation that was very relevant to them in that moment of time which made that conversation that much more powerful. So I think that's always important to remember of, of meeting, and I don't wanna just call them voters, right? They're more than voters, they're people, meeting people where they are and, and making sure you're meeting their needs, uh, whether it's through a policy lens or through a service that you can provide as an office. Thank you for that. So recently in Democracy Summer, we, you know, we've been breaking down these bills and having conversations about them. One of the things that came up um, when we were discussing 337 is, you know, the, the way that literacy tests are a relic of a past world that we're trying to get rid of. And so what I wanted to ask you um, was what other relics of racism do you see and are you trying to, to, to remove in your tenure as representatives? Where to start? <laughs> I mean, there, there are relics of racism in every uh, in every institution within our government, uh, at every decision-making point uh, within uh, our, certainly uh, our political process, but certainly also just in our power systems work. Uh, I, think, I think we can all identify those things. I think the literacy test, I think the attention that's, that's come through that bill has been really, really valuable. Um, but there's so many ways, I think, obviously through voting rights and uh, giving people access to the ballot is it is it in such an important and critical way that we can uh, 
combat uh, relics and just ongoing issues around racism and disenfranchisement. Um, but I mean, we see it, I know, at least from my experience in our criminal justice system, you know, I think so much of how we approach uh, crime and accountability uh, and how we punish people, the discretion that's exercised and by our courts, by law enforcement officers, are, uh, there are there are actual relics within the process and then people are, uh, are have, have the latitude to infect the process with their own biases. Um, and so I know for myself and so many folks here, really uh, kind of seizing the moment in particular that's kind of come about in the last year or so to address those issues, to fight for reforms uh, has been something that's been central to my career and certainly uh, at least my time here in the General Assembly. Um, so that's, I'll, I'll offer that. Um, like she said, uh, where to begin, um, but I'll, I'll start with um, uh, K-12 funding. Um, we know uh, that with K-12 former uh, public school teachers, so this is near and dear to me, um, and we, we know uh, after a certain point in our history where students of color were, in cities and in public schools and where non, you know, folks that were not of color went. Um, and those were privates and, and you know, we see the charter boom, et cetera. And, and, and not funding them adequately and trying to divert money away from public schools, um, you know, harkens back to a time of separate but never equal. Um, and that we see that starting, you know, here they want, if they could have a charter school in every block like a McDonald's, they would, because they understand, you know, what that does for further separation, even though they try to use people of color as a pawn in that process, we all know who's really being funded. And um, uh, so that's a, that's a relic that includes uh, vouchers, um, you know, taking public money and sending it to private. Uh, schools, um, again, trying to separate and uh, make things that are, you know, make education unequal, um, which is not sounding basic, which everybody deserves. Teacher diversity um, uh, and not, and so Ricky and I worked on the drive task force together and making sure that we have more people in the classroom, regardless of where you are in the state. Um, meaning every kid, regardless if you're black, white, purple, or brown, does better when you have teachers of color in the classroom. HBCU funding, uh, which we all can relate to. Um, uh, HBCUs in North Carolina, we have we have the most four-year universities that are HBCUs in the country, and we have not been funded um, at the levels that we should. Um, a minimum wage, uh, that harkens back to when they didn't want to pay slaves to slave, right? right? They put in work, and it was a lot better when you had cheaper um, and or free labor. And so they that fight for ensuring that people get paid what they deserve is something um, voting rights, as Renetta mentioned, vaccine equity, um, and all, all that we're sort of dealing with with the systems because of our past, um, and uh, and then actually removing the box, which also relates to uh, issues of um, of criminal justice, right? Criminalizing people even after they've served their time, and sort of not allowing them to, you know, outlive, you know, give uh, maximize their God-given potential after they served their time for the people. North Carolina. So those are just a few. I was going to mention uh, in regards to um, labor, right, and 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 sort of the relics of racism and labor as well, uh, and how that also ties to our social safety net. Um, there was a time, once upon a time, in the U.S. where um, public opinion didn't really 
have a negative sort of sentiment around uh, the use of things like food stamps, right? SNAP benefits, because it was largely white women who were marketed and using uh, uh, the SNAP program. Uh, it wasn't until they began racializing social safety net programs um, and using that as a political wedge issue where people began to have a negative sentiment. And so you under, you begin to understand that our social safety net um, is looked upon favorably when it when it's perceived that it's benefiting a certain group of people, uh, but when it's uh, but when it's looked at through a different lens, uh, that that sort of support begins to fracture. And so when you think about things like the minimum wage, unemployment benefits, uh, SNAP programs, programs that are meant to get help people get back on their feet, uh, there is certainly a, a racial dynamic there that that has has a long, long history, right? Um, and if you begin to dig into statistics on who benefits for this program versus who's perceived to be um, sort of just um, you know, latching on to government help, right? It becomes to become more clear as to uh, why it's framed in the way that it is. And so I think if, if y'all aren't sort of well-versed on that, it's certainly a fascinating sort of history on, on, on where that's been and, and, and sort of how we talk about that now. Hello, my name is Trinity Murray. Um, I am currently a sophomore at the illustrious North Carolina Central University. So first off, um, you guys, as you know, voting is our um, constitutional right and everyone should be able to exercise this right. Um, voting is our right, it's our duty as Americans and voting actually puts you guys in the position that you are in right now. Um, so it's a right that we should continue to protect and continue to fight for. So my question to you all is, in what ways do you believe the pro-voter legislative agenda will strengthen our state's democratic structure in the future? Oh, I'll, I'll go quickly. Um, Got a bill on it. Uh, automatic voter registration allows everybody to get into the process no matter where you are with no barriers. As soon as you're 18, boom, you are a registered voter. Think about what that changes for Ricky or Renetta. They don't have to go and do voter registration jobs. You're going straight to people and talking about issues that impact their life. You're not having to worry about some form that's gonna to get to the BOE that they gotta verify, none of that. Straight to the point. Second, um, uh, having the drop-off ballot boxes um, like they did in some states around the country, allowing people at their leisure to be able to drop those off in a secure way makes it absolutely convenient to um, make sure that people are able to take part in the process. Sometimes, again, life happens, people have a lot going on, getting to, uh, even during early voting is tough. When you can make it as easy as possible and have those ballot boxes like they did in Georgia, we see the outcome. Uh, third, uh, I would say that uh, anything that uh, is related to voter ID has to go away. Um, now, for those who have an ID, awesome. Those who have access to an ID, great. But if you do not, as long as you can verify who you say you are, you should be able to cast your ballot in the state of North Carolina. And, and that opens up the system so that everybody can participate from all entry points or as many entry points as possible um, before you get into issues and all those things. And so I think that helps to uh, strengthen democracy. And I think that um, we will see a lot more people uh, participate. So this next question is still in reference kind of to the last question, but I want you guys just to 
get a little bit more specific as um, a dear friend of mine likes to say, this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, so what strategies have you guys been using to achieve this pro voter agenda? I think um, for me, it's really important that I'm not the singular voice fighting on these issues, either in my district or in my state. And so part of the, the sort of the, the positive feedback loop, right, is to have a pro-voter agenda, you have to have voters be passionate about these issues, right? And so we continuously make an effort to make sure that people in our district understand what's at stake when we talk about um, vote, you know, vote pro-voter legislation at the federal level or, or at the state level, uh, and what is happening to, to their voting rights when we think about fighting back bad bills that would limit how absentee ballots could be used in North Carolina when you talk about uh, sort of the prospects of what, you know, automatic voter registration is and, and what that means for them uh, and helping people understand that voting is a right, right? We often talk about it like it's a privilege, but it is a right <laughs> enshrined in our constitution, right? And so it, it is something that uh, we really need to do a better job of talking about what it means to be an active participant in our society and our democracy. And I think that helps us advance a, a, a pro-voter agenda because then conversations about things like racial gerrymandering become a lot easier because folks understand um, what gerrymandering is and how it impacts their communities. Uh, and I think for me, that keeps me uh, a more honest candidate and elected official when we have fairer districts and fairer and fairer sort of voting legislation that makes sure that everyone can participate in that process. So Representative Hawkins, this is from Stephen Hemingway out in the West. We heard that earlier today there was a meeting at the governor's mansion that focused largely on teacher pay. What do you think are the legislature's next steps on raising teacher pay? Well, it's uh, you're right. Yes, yeah, so we, we did. And, um, you know, the, the governor uh, is his, his mother was a teacher, school teacher. Right. I mean, he he is someone who's truly passionate about it. I personally grew up in a family of teachers, was a teacher myself, and I understand, you know, what it means for them not to be making um, their ends meet and have to do second jobs um, on top of all that they do for our, our students. Um, so it, I don't think it's a matter of if uh, teacher pay will go up, it's just by how much. Now, clearly the governor has a more progressive sort of look at you know, what they need, um, but, but our current legislature and this current budget that we have, they are looking at anywhere between 500 and $1,000 bonuses um, uh, for teachers, but not a whole lot in actual recurring um, updates to their their pay scale, which again is problematic because you, you know one of the things that keeps um, teachers out of the classroom is the starting pay. But then after a three year period, you're struggling to learn how to be an effective teacher, and you're still then struggling to pay bills. And so when people get hit, sort of hit that third year time frame and don't have a clear path to become an AP or to become you know, an administrator, et cetera, then they leave the classroom and they go and do something else. And so um, it is uh, something that in our, the drive task force for diverse teachers that we're working on because we already know um, uh, what's happening. What's also important about um, those recommendations that help all teachers is that we're looking at ways that we could do things like forgivable loans, right? We can try to make sure that people who are willing to go 
um, we, we expanded uh, the teaching fellows program that um, that uh, it was now on three more uh, campuses that are all uh, MSIs, which two HBCUs and UNC Pembroke. So uh, when you remove that financial barrier for them too, as teachers, uh, that helps to to help cope what help them cope with the salary that they are receiving, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's it's not a matter of how much; it's just what we can negotiate at the end of the day in the budget process. All right, so let's move on to the next question. So we're going to have a question from Noah McKee out in the Western Piedmont region. Um, Noah would like to know, in light of Rep Hawkins' clearly outlined stance on how to rapidly revolutionize voting access and protection, do you believe that your colleagues are aiming equally high enough to advocate for Black, Brown, and poor voters across the state? I don't mean to answer this in a political way, but it's just the way it breaks down is that the, the 55 members of the Democratic Caucus in the House and the State Senate, yes. My members in the majority party, not so much. You have maybe a handful that understand that, you know, it's that to Ricky's point, it's about um, in not, making, not making the voters, not making your voters, but allowing voters to choose their representative and making sure they're informed so they can make informed decisions about who represents them. Um, and my friends in the majority party are nervous about that because the more they know, the more they potentially are going to choose our side, in my humble opinion. Um, but I would say that the people on, on the, in the minority party on both the House and the Senate are very passionate about that. And it's not just because we're in the minority currently. One thing that the governor has said, for, to, back to Representative Furtado's point about gerrymandering, is if we won the majority tomorrow, we would have a nonpartisan redistricting committee so that you can get this, the process of drawing lines out of the hands of legislators and let it be fair so that it's reflective of the people. So that's sort of where we are, but that's the breakdown. Thank you for that question. All right, um, this question is for Representative Alston coming from Dimitri McKinney out of the central Piedmont region. Um, stemming from your comments on criminal justice reforms, what efforts and programs have you seen that hold a great deal of promise for North Carolina communities, um, in particular, the areas of criminal justice reform? I um, appreciate the question. Um, I think a few things come to mind. Uh, I think first and foremost, we saw, so last year, last summer, the governor commissioned a task force on racial equity and criminal justice. Uh, which I think was a, a really worthwhile uh, response uh, to police violence last year. And uh, the, their work yielded 127 recommendations that I think if implemented uh, would put North Carolina tr truly in the forefront of criminal justice reform uh, in our country. Um, so there's that, and I'd say a, a number of uh, bills that were filed this session, including the few that I filed, um, you know, included those recommendations and I think are incredibly urgent for the legislature to move forward on or should have moved forward on for agencies like the Department of Public Safety or courts, uh, our judicial or kind of appellate court judges, or law enforcement officials. I mean, it touched just every aspect of criminal justice. And I think, uh, you know, we have not made the progress on those recommendations that I would have liked to have seen, but uh, there are things that I think we should use as tools, both in the legislature, but 
uh, communities should continue to rely on as tools to guide our progress uh, towards criminal justice reform. I think a, a couple important other things that happened um, in our courts last year, uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court essentially breathed life back into the Racial Justice Act, which you referenced in my introduction. Um, uh, Racial Justice Act was a revolutionary law that passed in 2009, was eventually repealed by a Republican legislature in 2012. Um, I think it was 2000, maybe it was 2013, I forget the uh, exact year, but it was repealed, uh, kind of taking away this really important, uh, valuable, and statistically relevant opportunity for folks on death row to demonstrate racial bias in their cases through statistical evidence, through data. Um, and that opportunity was removed, and uh, through the through the appellate process, um, our Supreme Court kind of uh, gave everyone who had already filed claims under this law a renewed opportunity to uh, litigate their cases under under the Racial Justice Act. Um, and so that was that was it was a really really big an important step um, for all the individuals who currently sit on North Carolina's death row, uh, but for us as a state to again using data. Uh, reckon with uh, a long uh, and really tragic history of racism and uh, implicit bias in our in our uh, criminal justice system. So that was an important point of progress. All that said, uh, and we've seen a few bills uh, that have passed the House at least uh, in the last few months that have you know alluded to reform things like um, uh, psychological training or psychological uh, evaluations and trainings for law enforcement officials uh, a bill that would prevent shackling of uh, pregnant women uh, in our in our prison system so there have been things like that that are certainly important but really just tip the iceberg of the work that needs to be done in this area uh, and so I, I see so many failed opportunities unfortunately in this session uh, missed opportunities uh, that I hope that we can continue to to, to rectify uh, in the future so this question comes from Brianna Martin um, in the West. Brianna wants to know how, how can you explain or can you explain your career path and how it led to where you are now? I'm going to direct this to um, Representative Alston first. If other people would like to um, weigh in thereafter, that's also great. Um, and the reason why is because one of the ways that I first became um, aware of Vernetta Alston's um, uh, I guess, impact that she was having in Durham was during um, an incident where she was invited to speak at a school, but upon finding out that she was queer, they disinvited her to speak at the school. Now she's a city council member at this point. So I, I would like to know in the context of also navigating a political career as a woman of color who identifies as LGBTQ, how that has impacted how you've navigated um, and, and what advice you would give to other people that are entering that process. Um, because I can imagine incidents like that could be very discouraging. I think the, the part of the short answer is it's still my perspective on kind of uh, how I approach my kind of different identities and, and navigating politics and, and governing uh, is still evolving, certainly. I, I think uh, to the incident you, uh, you uh, described uh, I think on the one hand, I would say it was, it was devastating uh, and uh, really unfortunate, not, not just for me, but for the community of, of students um, who were really, I think, really the, the victims of that whole situation um, because it sends such a terrible message about uh, exclusion uh, and 
it devalued the work that they'd done to prepare for the event that we were all supposed to participate in. But on one hand, though, you know, I've always said how how lucky I am to live in a place like Durham because Durham is so inclusive. It really champions uh, LGBTQ community, and that really showed. I feel like the the second that that happened, which was really a church-driven decision, Durham really responded in exactly the way you'd want uh, a community to respond. They rallied behind me. Uh, they rejected the again kind of the message that came with that decision, um, and so it was really validating to 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 feel so connected to this community and really. Um, fortified my interest in serving in this capacity. It also really uh, made me so keenly aware of the, the importance of my representation, um, kind of as a black woman and as someone in the LGBTQ community um, about you know how valuable it had already been to the folks that I served, but what an opportunity this is to be a, a voice uh, when it's sometimes hard to feel like you're, even in this role, sometimes hard to feel like your voice isn't really carrying or having an impact. Um, so it really gave me a sense of responsibility uh, to the role that I've played on the city council, but I think even more so in my capacity here in the General Assembly. Thank you, um, Representative Alston, for that really vulnerable and thorough answer to that. And I can also attest to seeing the way that Durham came together around you was very inspiring as well. Um, Representative Hawkins and Representative Hurtado, if you all could briefly touch on what it is like to go from that student advocate to actually being now in the legislature, because you all both started um, with you, Representative Hurtado, um, doing the mentorship program at University of North Carolina um, and all of the work that you did in undergrad, Representative Hawkins. Can you talk about a little bit of that evolution um, as briefly as you can? Um, so that you can help to inspire some of these student sure. agitators um, who we have. That's right. Be an agitator. Um, don't let it go. Once the once that that bug bites you, which it did for me um, when I was a, a junior and a senior, um, it's hard to stop wondering how you can make a difference. And once you start showing up, people expect you to show up, and you realize that your voice does uh, matter to people. They miss you when you're not there to bring leadership. And I think that, um, you know, that, that's the biggest thing that I, I would say to everybody is just don't try to get out of it, um, lean into it and make sure that uh, you continue to find issues that you're passionate about. Um, and you don't have to conquer the world. You just have to make sure that you're making a difference in that area um, because you there is a, there are people out there that need you, so. Yeah, um, and, the, and the closes out here, um, I'll say I'm, all, I'm always happy to have follow-up conversations with uh, students who are interested in learning more about public service and, and serving in office in particular. Uh, mine was a similar route. I, I think my advice is sort of finding that intersection between something you're good at, your skills, your passion and lived experience, as well as a need in the community. If you're identifying problems that you can be useful in solving, uh, that makes a world of a difference. And the community will begin recognizing you for those efforts. I don't think that any of us ever sought out that recognition for recognition's sake, but we're actually interested in solving some of these issues. I had no idea 10 years ago that I wanted to run for office. I actually barely voted in 2008 for Barack Obama. And so I was that disengaged with the political process. Uh, but you know, 15 years later, I'm here serving in, in politics. And so y'all certainly have a, an edge there in terms of interest and understanding our political process. But, but yeah, I think just throw yourself in the work locally uh, and see how you can be useful to both community advocates, but also uh, getting involved in your local political party as well. 
connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Democracy North Carolina or at Democracy NC on Twitter and Instagram. Or find us online at www.democracync.org. Emily again, thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly had fun chatting with our representatives and learning more about them. Now, going forward, we'll be adding a fun little ending to our episodes. We decided to use our platform to highlight local musicians in North Carolina. Music is a way for people to express themselves in a creative way, and here at Democracy NC, we are all about that. So currently playing is E is the Goat. He is from Charlotte, North Carolina, and this is his song, Sunshine. Go check him out on all streaming platforms.